0: You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Have you ever heard the phrase, what gets measured gets managed? Well, I use that a lot when working with clients and helping them to understand how to achieve carbon neutrality. Well, how do you do that? Well, first, you need to understand your carbon footprint, so you need to measure it. Then you need to work on strategies to actually reduce your footprint then finally you can purchase carbon offsets to achieve carbon neutrality. Well, what gets measured gets managed is also true when it comes to understanding river ecology and river chemistry. And on today's episode, I interview Science on the Fly founder and Deputy Director and Senior Scientist of the Woodwell Climate Research Center, Dr. Max Holmes. And we take a deep dive into climate change, Uh, the effect climate has on river chemistry and fish, and also how science on the fly is using citizen science to collect data to better understand and enhance water quality and watershed health. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. Emerger Strategies is also a founding member of the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance, is a carbon neutral company, and is also a proud 1% for the Planet member. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is also brought to you by Rios Gear. Makers of sunglasses that float, that are polarized, and offer 100% UV protection, Rios Gear is also a 1% for the planet member. They are a Charleston-owned company, and they've recently launched their H2OME campaign, which was created to encourage people to fall in love with the water and help them protect it. Rios is selling H2OME t shirts with half of the proceeds being donated to nonprofits like Charleston Waterkeeper, Charleston Surfrider, and the South Carolina Aquarium. Go to www.riosgear.com forward slash H2OME to watch episodes, claim your shirt, and make a difference. So, sure. Max, uh, we we actually had an opportunity to talk uh, on the phone, I don't know, a couple months ago or something and, and got to know each other a little bit better. Um, but for those out there listening, would you mind providing just sort of a, a background on how you got into being a climate scientist and what led you to science on the fly, the the, the whole story?
1: Yeah, sure <laughs> thing, right? Thanks a lot. You know, thanks for the opportunity to be on here. So. Yeah. How did I become a scientist? Um, You know, it it probably, I guess I first was a fisherman and I grew up in different places, but let's say as a young kid, I was in Northern Michigan and any chance I had, I was out, you know, either on a boat with my dad and, you know, fishing for lake trout or something like that. Or then as soon as the boat hit land, I was, you know, messing around in streams and flipping over rocks and trying to catch fish and, and just sort of curious it's about the world around me like every kid is and you know I, I often say that you know everybody starts off as a scientist trying to figure out how the world works and some of us sort of stick with it so yeah I really had this you know I guess beginning as an angler trying to figure out how to catch a fish like uh, yeah. lots of your listeners probably do and there's this definitely a you know a science to that as well and um there weren't really any scientists in my family but there was a a family friend of ours that I always kind of heard about. I, I didn't meet the guy until I was in college, but his name is Ken Cummins and he was a stream ecologist, kind of a you know, a famous stream ecologist. And what I knew about him as a young kid was he tried to studied trout streams in Montana. So, you know, that was good enough for me. If you can do that as a job, that that sounded pretty good. And um, so I always always had that in the back of my mind and, you know, I kind of went up different roads at you know, different, different paths along the way, but in college, I, you know, I studied biology and um, I guess I, um, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but sort of after my freshman year of college, I did pretty well. And everyone was like, well, you know, why aren't you pre-med? You know, you're doing really, why aren't you pre-med? And I thought, well, maybe that's OK. I'll be pre-med for a while, you know. And uh, I did that. You know, I said I was pre-med. That doesn't really mean much. You know, it, you're not really taking different classes or anything like that. But, you know, I was a biology major pre-med. I guess. And then um, my and and I was taking things like genetics and cell biology and all this really kind of focused little stuff. And then my senior year, I took my first ecology class and that just like, you know, kind of like, okay, now I remember why I'm really into this stuff and yeah, forget that pre-med stuff. You know, that's important. Don't get me wrong, but that's, I'm really passionate about the natural world and trying to understand it and trying to protect it. So, um, so I started to head down that path and I, you know, I still wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. And, you know, this is kind of a funny story perhaps, but the guy that, taught this ecology class. This was at University of Texas. And his name was Eric Pionka, kind of this ornery old ecologist. I, I thought he was the coolest guy in the world, just this grumpy old dude. And he studied lizards. Uh, um, and um, I was going to go to India with him after I, right after I graduated as an undergraduate to help him, you know, kind of be his field assistant, studying lizards in India. And, uh, and that fell through The Indian government didn't, give us visas, I guess it was some kind of unrest in that area or something. So as a backup, I'd applied to a program at the University of Michigan Biological Station to do some research up there and take a class. And so I kind of fell back on that one and um, and took a stream ecology class there at this amazing biological station um, and did some research on trout streams. And like, okay, this is, yeah, this is pretty good. This is, this is kind of what I'm into. Um, and, you know, I still wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up getting a master's at University of Michigan in natural resources and then went to do a Ph.D. at Arizona State University, focusing on on, on stream ecosystems and stream chemistry and so on.
0: Wow. So fell in love with the natural world, takes you all the way to your Ph.D. in, in river ecosystems, which is pretty pretty uh incredible and fortuitous for for us listening so uh, i think i think we're gonna uh, learn a lot on on uh today's today's podcast but um so after you graduated what where, where did you go how did, how did you find work in, in in your field
1: yeah that's funny you know and it still wasn't a, a straight path by any means to where i am right now but so i got my phd in uh 1995. And back then, you know, it wasn't a sort of an online world. And you, you know, it was, you'd look in the back of like science magazine, the journal for jobs. And I remember flipping in the back of science, you know, looking for a postdoctoral position right after I got my PhD. And there was one advertised in Woods Hole where I am now at the at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And it, it was for somebody to work on estuaries in, in New England. And um, there were sort of four things listed as requirements for that job. One you know, something about estuaries, which I I, I didn't really know much about estuaries. So I don't even think I could fake it, but you know, kind of, kind of negative on that one. The next was, you know, something about nitrogen cycling and I, that's sort of what I'd done in rivers for my PhD. So I was good there. The third was, you know, something about using stable isotopes in ecological research. And I didn't know anything about that. The fourth was that you work well in collaborative research environments. and so. What the heck? I sent in a letter thinking I wouldn't have a chance. I'd never really been to New England before. And, um, you know, Woods Hole is kind of a famous place for doing science and sent it off. And somehow they decided to interview me. And then, you know, somehow I got a job. So I ended up being at the Marine Biological Laboratory for 10 years, um, first working on estuaries for a couple of years. And then I got a chance to do some river stuff and uh, go to the Arctic. And I was totally hooked on that. So I was at the Marine Biological Laboratory for 10 years, which was an amazing place. And then I got the chance to move up the road to what at that point was named the Woods Hole Research Center. Uh, And just a year ago, we changed our name to the Woodwell Climate Research Center. But yeah, I've been there since, um, well, since 2005. So 16 years now at the Woodwell Climate Research Center.
0: That's awesome. And then <clears throat> I know and, and, and we're going to take a, a much deeper dive into this, um, but I'm also really excited to introduce everyone who's not who's not familiar already with also your latest project, which is science on the fly. Uh, could you give us just a, a, a brief background on that? And then we're really going to dive in uh, here in a little while. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief, but maybe I'll give you a, a little bit um, on, on how I got there. And yeah. before I before I talk about science, I'll sort of talk a little bit more about the science that I typically do, which is, uh, in general, uh, focusing on river chemistry and discharge and, and how it changes over time and then what we can learn about what's going on in, in the river's watershed based on that. So so what you see in a river in terms of this chemistry, uh, in part is, on what's going on the processes in the river but to even larger degree it, it it depends on what's going on in the land around the river in, in the river's watershed so um at the woodwell climate research center as our name suggests the big focus focus of ours is on climate change and so my science is sort of again looking at river chemistry and river discharge how those things change over time and and, and learning what we can about what what's causing the changes, whether that's being driven by climate change or some other disturbances in the watershed or, or something like that. So I spent a lot of my time working on really big rivers around the world. A lot of that's in the Arctic, and um, the Arctic's a super important place for climate change. One, because the warming is greater, so it's happening faster there, and also it's particularly sensitive to warming. And there are really big rivers lot, dumping lots of uh, water and, and and things into the Arctic Ocean. So I've spent a lot of time in the Russian Arctic and working on the big, big rivers uh, in Alaska and Canada and the Yukon River, Mackenzie River, big Siberian rivers, um, and sampling those rivers sort of multiple times a year. Our partners of ours sampling those rivers multiple times a year to see how their chemistry is changing over time. Uh, we do similar things on the Amazon River, the largest river on earth, on the Congo River, the second largest. And those Arctic ones are, you know, sort of in the top 10 that I, that I work in. So, and all that takes, you know, it's it's a wonderful adventure and super important science, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to sort of develop the partnerships with people on the ground in different places and, and the logistics and everything. So that's sort of how I, I spend a lot of my time. But i have always kind of in the back of my mind, um, well, I always want to, work in more places and learn more things and see more things. And, you know, I have more adventures and everything else. And, um, you know, when I'm not sort of studying rivers as a scientist, I'm not on rivers as a, as a fly fisherman. And um, I've sort of long felt that there must be some way of bringing these two worlds together because, you know, anglers are around the world doing passionate about rivers and, and so on. And and so, and like, okay, there, there's gotta be some way to bring these things together. Um, and it was about, I don't know, about five years ago, I guess I had a, my sister-in-law actually, her and her husband got a house in Telluride, Colorado. And anyone who knows Telluride would know that if any chance you get to go there, you're probably going to jump on it. You know, if you if like mountains and fishing and rivers and everything else. So skiing, my family and I, you know, started to head out there whenever we could and got to know that area And as any, you know, fly angler would do you go into the local fly shop and get to know those guys and it's in telluride it's telluride angler i got to know the owners of telluride angler and you know they got to know a little bit about the science that i do and i got to learn you know i could just see how passionate they were about their rivers and um doing anything they could to to protect them and so we kick around some ideas and and then I met a guy, um, Johnny Lecoque, who's the owner and founder of Fishpond. In fact, I was checking out your uh, website uh, earlier today, Rick, and I saw like right on the cover image, um, there was Johnny. It was it was you, but I think you were like hosting a panel or something and Johnny was on that. So, yep. yeah, I got to know Johnny and, you know, he, he shares the same passions for rivers in the natural world world, and doing whatever could be done to protect them. So it was sort of with, you know, this sort of group of people, uh, Johnny LeCocq and Telluride Angler, uh, John Duncan, Troy Youngplace, and others there that we just started kicking around ideas and thinking about, all right, you know, how can we get anglers, uh, guys, fly fishing guides, uh, to... Actually, you know, collect some of the samples that you're interested in, send those to Woods Hole for us to analyze in our lab. See how their rivers are changing over time, and then use that information to hopefully to affect change and protect and restore rivers. So, we um, we started on with Telluride Angler and just some uh, rivers in that area, San Miguel River and some of its tributaries, and that was about I don't know a little over a year and a half ago. I think they started sampling um, eight locations around Telluride uh every two weeks and sending those water samples back to us to analyze and we're you know we're already learning some super interesting stuff there but um that that was just sort of the prototype of it and then we got some funding from Patagonia to try to expand to some additional fly shops uh, in Telluride or in Colorado and we did that then we got some uh additional philanthropic support and we're able to expand more and just sort of jumping forward a little bit, you know, we kind of went slowly and we weren't really sure if this idea would work, you know, partnering with fly shops, partnering with guides, partnering with anglers, but we, you know, put together a website, um, scienceonafly.org and an Instagram account, and uh, people just started coming out of the woodwork, (laughs) volunteering to uh, go out and sample their rivers. It's basically, you know, collect a sample every month. It's a pretty simple protocol one 60 bottle filtered water sample, freeze it, and then periodically send them back to Woods Hole for analysis. And yeah, we've just been super gratified and a little bit overwhelmed with how many people want to do this, understand the rivers, participate in the science. And um, we're up to, it's over 300 sites now that are being wow. sampled every month, over 100 volunteers in 38 states and six countries. And uh, we finally had to just like, we, we were already... Just saying no to a lot of people because we could we couldn't really handle uh, it all at once, and we've sort of had to slam on the brakes and just sort of catch our breath and raise some money. But certainly the vision is to to keep growing and expanding, you know, more across the country and and globally, and just engage this amazing community that same, shares the same sort of interest and passion for understanding rivers, protecting rivers participating in the science and so on so it's been yeah it's been super exciting and it's it's fun to see something that you know a couple of years ago was just an idea that you didn't really know if it would work at all and it, you know it seems that it, it is at this point it definitely is we can see that there's a you know a lot of people that sort of share the same interests
0: yeah no that that's awesome um and i love that the the one of the things that because i want to learn more about the you talk about the chemistry and the discharge of rivers and um what is affecting them but before we do that um because i do want to take this as an opportunity to to educate as many people as we can i mean let's just start as broad as we possibly can and if we're talking about climate change as a scientist it's you add a lot more credibility than me talking about it so what 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 is climate change let's start there and then we're going to we're going to work our way down
1: yeah so i mean it's it, in in one sense it's self explanatory the words kind of say it, it it's yeah. changing climates and um you know i guess it's important to think about what time frame we're we're talking about but if you think of over hundreds and thousands of years over the history of the earth earth's, Climate changes. Humans have been around for a couple hundred thousand years. Human activities have really only ramped up, you know, in the last several hundred years. But throughout the history of the Earth, the 4.5 billion years or whatever, the Earth's climate has changed and it's changed dramatically over time. And it's changed in the absence of any human activity. And and it's pretty well understood what. The reasons are for that, and you know, part of it has to do with greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and and processes that put more of it into the atmosphere at certain times or take some of it out of it. Um, there are there are other things certainly that influence it versus climate. But um, if you go back. Well, right now, well, let's see. If you go back 10,000 years ago, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million. So carbon dioxide is one of the main greenhouse gases. If you go back longer than that, we can go back you know, over 600,000 years by looking at uh, gas bubbles that are trapped in ice cores in Antarctica or a little bit shorter time in, in Greenland. And then we can reconstruct the Earth's atmospheric, the concentration of carbon dioxide at Earth's temperature from, from those sorts of records. Anyways, before 10,000 years, it would hop around a lot, both the carbon dioxide concentration and the Earth's temperature. Around 10,000 years ago, we hit this really strange stretch where the Earth's climate was relatively stable uh, for these most of these past 10,000 years. Uh, 10,000 years ago, there were around a million or maybe 2 million people on the face of the Earth. Wow. We hit this stable stretch of climate and not surprisingly, Earth's population Expanded. Uh, When I was born, there were about 3.3 billion people. Now we're at about 7.5. When my great-great-grandmother was born, there were around a billion people. You know, so Earth's population has taken off. It's taken off in part because we've been in this really stable period of climate, and then more recently, it's taken off because we've figured out this awesome way to get energy and use that energy to support our lives, to sustain our lives. And that's that awesome source of energy uh, was in, say, around. 1850 the first fossil fuel we started to use was coal They dig that stuff out of the ground burn it it's a really good energy source around 1900 we started to use oil same thing awesome potent energy source and around 1950 we started to get serious about using natural gas all of those are those fossil fuels are called fossil fuels because they're the remains of mainly plants but also animals that lived millions and millions of years ago and have, it, and have just in because of geological processes that have gotten stored away in the earth not decomposing and just sort of sitting there for us to use it you know it seemed like a wonderful thing in a lot of in a lot of ways it was what we didn't really realize initially was that you know the byproduct of that use of the fossil fuels combustion of fossil fuels is uh, carbon dioxide is one of the main ones this greenhouse gas we've known that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere helps to warm the earth it's a good thing it does but you know without that Things wouldn't be so hospitable for us, but we're pulling vast amounts of ancient carbon out of the ground in the form of fossil fuels and putting into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gas. And that's causing the earth to warm. I said, you know, 10,000 years ago, CO2 concentration, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was around 280 parts per million. It was about that in 1850. Since then, it's been going up as we've been using fossil fuels, and, and you know, as of today, we're up at 414 or you know, something over 400 parts per million. And we know where that's coming from. It's coming from burning fossil fuels. Secondarily, it's coming from uh, deforestation. When you chop down forests, burn forests, put carbon into the atmosphere. So, so we know where it's coming from. We've known for a long time that uh, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It causes the Earth to warm. Um, And that's that's just well-established. There's not a lot of room for argument there. There can be a lot of room. And where a lot of the argument comes in is what's going to happen in the future? Um, And, you know, what's the temperature going to be in 100 years? And nobody can really tell you that because, for one, we don't know what decisions we're going to make as a society. Are we going to keep pulling all of the fossil fuels out of the ground that we can and burning them? Are we going to keep deforesting primarily the tropics now and putting that carbon into the atmosphere? If the answer to those questions are yes, it's going to get pretty warm and that's not going to be so good. If we make other decisions and transition off fossil fuels to other energy sources, if we protect and restore forests, if we do all these other things that we need to do, let's say to combat climate change, you get a very different answer. But yeah, I think a lot of times people take the... Let's say the uncertainty the range of estimates for what might happen in the future as as a indication that well the scientists don't really know what they're talking about there's so much uncertainty about that and yeah there's always scientific uncertainty but the biggest part of that uncertainty uh when it comes to projecting or predicting what's going to happen in the future it comes from the uncertainty about what decisions humans are going to make
0: Yeah, and so that and that's and just as a I guess a, a point of, I'll just make this point just because it's a, it's an interesting stat that I'm kind of fixated on, um, with what I do with, with trying to to help businesses reduce their, their carbon footprint. Um, is that according to the, the IPCC, that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change, we need to half global greenhouse gas emissions this decade and be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, so just, uh, is as dr holmes is 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 explaining all of this we burn fossil fuel we release greenhouse gas emissions okay now we're realizing we can't do that it's going to make the earth unhospitable so what do we need to do we need to find alternative energy sources um and that typically comes in the form of renewable energy nuclear things that don't um emit greenhouse gas emissions um and that's sort of the where we are in kind of this this next decade that um, is is interesting. But um, I'm just throwing my little tidbit in there. But that's that's a something. If you're listening to this and going, oh well, what do we need to do to fix it? Well, globally, everyone needs to really start um, focusing on reducing our our carbon footprint as as quickly as possible. Um, but that's yeah, that's
1: that's exact. Yeah, go ahead. That, that's exactly right. I mean, and it's not just sort of switching to renewable energy sources, but it's also thinking about energy efficiency. You know, how can we use less yeah. and, and, and conserve what we have? But yeah, we have to do all those things that you said. We've got to start to do them in a hurry if we're going to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. And it's a it's a daunting task and a and and a big challenge. But in that challenge, I think there's uh, you know, we've risen to big challenges before. Maybe this is a bigger one than globally we face. but, you know, we've, we've done some really big things before. And, and what, and when you have something like this, they also, there's opportunity there, you know, there's creativity, there's innovation, all these things need to come to the forefront to figure out how to tackle this thing and, and make life better, make our future better for, you know, for, for the next generation and lots of generations down the road.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, All right. So let's talk about, well, thank you for that, by the way, that's, that's hugely helpful. Um, And let's talk about how, so how is climate change affecting river chemistry and you're seeing this all over the world. And, and, and you mentioned, there are some other things obviously that affect it, but, but I'm, I'm I'm curious to know how is it affecting river chemistry? And then as a follow-up to that, I'll just go ahead and ask now is, you know, and then, how is that affecting
1: fish? Yeah. Um, okay, a lot. to different ways. Let me unpack that a little bit. So as I mentioned, <laughs> I spent a lot of my time in the Arctic and the Arctic's, uh, you know, it's a super important place when you are thinking about climate change, in part because of permafrost. So permafrost is, you know, permanently frozen ground. And from a climate perspective, what's really important about that is it stores just vast amounts of ancient carbon. Again, this is not fossil fuels I'm talking about, not that old, but maybe, you know, thousands of year old remains of plants and animals that have basically just been frozen away in this frozen ground. So, um, and there's roughly twice as much carbon locked up in permafrost in the Arctic as there is in the atmosphere right now. So, uh, and when that permafrost saws, it's sort of like when you're, let's say you're, freezer is unplugged or it's not working so well and it becomes a refrigerator you know what happens when that happens you know you start to smell that stuff's rotting away right if you if you go away on a trip or something and come back a week later and your freezer is not working you've got a problem And you, that that smelling is or that, that smell is you know that rotting is decomposition and it's basically bacteria chewing on that food in your freezer and releasing various things, including carbon dioxide and methane. and So that's what's starting to happen in the Arctic now with permafrost is frozen ground, as the Arctic is warming. I think I already mentioned the, the warming in the Arctic is around twice the global average. So the Arctic's warming pretty fast, permafrost starting to thaw, and that carbon that's locked up in the permafrost starts to decompose, rot, and that releases carbon dioxide and methane, which are greenhouse gases, which then can lead to more warming and so on and so forth. You worry about this um, self-reinforcing cycle. So, okay, how does that link to rivers? Um, the chemistry of a river, it sort of integrates the processes occurring in its watershed. So we work on big rivers in the Arctic, as I mentioned. Yukon and Mackenzie. people have probably heard about. In the Russian Arctic, we work on the Yenisei, Lena, and Koloma. And those are, well, the Yenisei, and Lena are all comparable in size to the large river in North America the Mississippi River so super big rivers wow. um, and and uh, um, so we've been sampling those rivers since 2003 uh, six times per year looking at the chemistry seasonally and then over longer time periods and um, I told the permafrost story because one of the things that we measure in the rivers is the carbon different forms of carbon that are in the rivers but also the age of the carbon so you can radiocarbon, date, the age of the carbon in the river, figure out how old it is. So what we sort of predicted for a long time is that as uh, warming continues in the Arctic, permafrost thaw will accelerate and we'll start to see signs of that in the river, the carbon in the river, older and older carbon. And to cut to the chase, we think we're starting to see that. We're certainly seeing that in some of the smaller uh, streams that we sample in, in the Arctic. And we may be getting indications of that in these really big rivers. So, you know, when I wear my scientist hat, I get really excited about that. Like, oh, God, you know, this thing that we thought was going to happen seems to be happening now. Uh, but pretty much every other part of me as a, you know, as a citizen and a parent and a, somebody who cares about what the future is going to look like, that's not good news because we want to keep that ground frozen. We want to keep this carbon locked away and out of the atmosphere. So anything that suggests that might be Doing something else—it's uh, not—it's not good news. So, I mean, that's just one example of the sorts of way that we can use river chemistry to give us clues about uh, what's happening in the watersheds. We measure all different kinds of things, not just carbon, different nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, major ions, all you know, all different uh, um, chemical compounds that naturally occur in rivers, and and look at how they may be changing over time, and then try to tease apart what that's telling us about you know the health of the rivers the health of the watersheds how they're how they may be changing over time An analogy i like to use sometimes is that we study river water chemistry, like a physician studies, blood chemistry. So, you know, if you get your annual physical, they take a blood sample, they measure a bunch of things in that blood. It's a lot of the same things that we measure in river water chemistry. And and what they're doing is just, you know, they're using that as an indication, not because they're so much interested in your blood, but they're interested in what they can learn about your health and how it changes over time based upon the chemistry of your blood. So that's the similar kind of thing that we're doing on rivers around the world. With And that's focusing on the chemistry. We also are really interested in the discharge and look at how discharge, you know, just the amount of water flowing down the river, um, how that changes both seasonally and how it changes over the longer term. And that can give us important clues about climate change. And what we've seen in Arctic rivers uh, is that the, the discharge of these big rivers is going up. Um, uh, so if you go back there, the Russians started measuring discharge of their Arctic rivers back in 1936, way before we did so I said 1836, no, 1930. sorry, 1936. So, you know, there's over 80 years of data there, and we can see it's a really powerful data set. Um, uh, it's been going up. We think that's related to warming. Warmer air holds more moisture, um, and there's sort of a, a, a transporta- transport of atmospheric moisture from the tropics to the poles, you get more precipitation, more river discharge. So yeah, just look, looking at, at at the discharge of rivers also gives you a climate signal. Um, more broadly, I guess, you know, it's not just, you, you can learn a lot, it's, it's not just climate change that you learn about by looking at river chemistry. We're working now, you know, around the country in lots of different places where climate change is certainly having an impact, but other human activities do as well. And, you know, there, you, we, we measure things say like nitrate or phosphate which are um, present in fertilizers they're present in wastewater so as you're looking at at those sorts of nutrients and streams they're important uh, elements for streams to have or compounds for streams to have but in excess they cause all kinds of problems and, and so those things you know those you can you can often see let's say the signature of a wastewater treatment plant beside a river in, in the chemistry of that river down, downstream and that um if you know that can have big negative implications on, on the health of the river and, and the insects and the fish that rely on those insects that we care so much about.
0: Yeah you know, and, and and that's the um, I actually saw recently that I think Miami-Dade County in Florida is like banning is it, I guess maybe fertilizer during like the warmer months of the year because of the impact on the bay because it's you know it's uh, to your point it's changing the chemistry of the river it's causing algal blooms and all sorts of other problems um which ultimately affect the fish too
1: yeah that's right they have all kinds of problems with i guess red tides on there and a lot of that can be traced to fertilizer you can go down to the, you know any garden center and buy fertilizer pretty inexpensively and what people tend to do is because it's cheap they use more than they need to use and you know if, you're, if your lawn's not using it Uh, What happens to it, it gets into the groundwater, it washes off, and surface water ends up in, you know, streams and rivers and lakes and eventually the ocean and causes all kinds of negative things. You know, it does in in a river, it does exactly what it does on your lawn. It helps stimulate plant growth. And uh, yeah, it's important that you have some plant growth in rivers, but you definitely get too much of a good thing. And just this overabundance of algae that's happening in lots of different places. And that, you know, that's not good for a trout stream or lots of other... in you know environments that we spend our time in
0: no no and that, and and so so we're talking about a healthy river and you're kind of looking at it from the chemistry standpoint and i guess it depends on the location of the river but what are some of the the things that you're looking at that determine the health of a, of a river
1: the i mean the things that we measure um, on, well, let's say on Science on a Fly, for example. And I, I haven't said a lot in detail about that, but it's again, it's monthly sampling, a single 60 milliliter water sample uh, filtered through a really fine pore size filter. So we send all the volunteers, everything they need to collect these samples, they freeze them away, they send them back to our labs where we analyze for nitrate, uh, ammonium, phosphate, and silica. That's sort of what broadly we call nutrients. Um, also dissolved organic carbon and total dissolved nitrogen. So those those are the basic chemical measurements that we make as part of science on the fly. We also um, measure water temperature when the samples are collected. Uh, some other projects, we have a longer suite of things we measure, but in science on the fly, is just so big in so many different places and so on. This is pretty, it's still a really nice, powerful suite of, uh, of measurements. And yeah, some of those things, again, um, I mentioned well, nitrate and phosphate, or nitrogen and phosphorus, are present in fertilizers. Present, present in wastewater, they can give you clues about that. They're also present in you know in permafrost and that may be thawing. Or I mean, it's it's really you get a a, a sample or two from a river, or even a a year's worth of samples, and you learn something. You learn certainly the concentrations of. Of chemicals in a river vary over the course of a year. They just naturally do that for lots of different reasons. But where it gets really interesting for me is over the longer term. And if you start to see change over the years, then you know that something's really going on here. And you know, maybe it's concentrations of nutrients are going down. And in general, that's a good thing. You know, that that's yeah. that's suggesting that things are getting cleaned up, but maybe it's going the other. Direction, uh, and that would raise a red flag, and you'd look at you know what's causing that, and so on. So, yeah, I mean we're just we're pretty, like I said it you know a year and a half overall in the science on the fly, but most of the sites that are being sampled are are newer than that. Already we're seeing some things that kind of jump out at you like oh wow that's you know what's going on here, and let, let's figure out what's happening you know in this particular site. This is way out of range of what we're seeing in the, the region or or, you know, the other places we're sampling, but yeah, what's really keeping me fired up is just to look at how change happens, you know, how it unfolds unfolds over time. And yeah, I certainly hope that we'll see things heading good good directions in lots of places, but I'm sure we'll get some unpleasant surprises too. Uh, One example I was just talking to, uh, um, trying to think if I want to, how I want to put this one because I'm not sure who wants this out, out of the hat. Let me just say that there was a, there was one of the sites in Science on a Fly where um, they had some high nutrient concentrations and 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 uh, it seemed to be seemed to be related to wastewater um, treatment. And apparently one of the, the wastewater treatment plants had some issues recently and dumped a bunch of sewage or or minimally treated stuff in the rivers. And we haven't analyzed those samples yet, but I'm I'm excited to do so and you know see what it shows and, and provide that information to him and to anybody else to help them understand what's going on in their rivers and then what what can be done about it um yeah one important point i'll make is that all of the data that we produce are publicly available so if you go to um there's a page called the rivers there's a link there to all the raw data but there's also some maps that show some sort of average concentrations in different places so yeah we want the we want this information to be used by anybody who finds it interesting or has, you know, can, can put it to use.
0: Yeah, no. And, and, and I think that that's part of uh, the interesting thing. And, and, and uh, from wearing the hat that I, that I wear and, and and what I do with working with businesses, it's the same um the data right i mean it's it's from a business standpoint you're not going to manage what you don't measure so if you have no idea what your carbon footprint is there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to reduce it you can do things anecdotally like yeah i can switch to led or i can do these things but i don't really know if how much i've reduced my footprint or 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 anything like that and with what y'all are doing and getting this data that had maybe historically not been being measured in a lot of the rivers that anglers love to fish in, which I think is super cool and will be awesome over time is to then be able to say, no, look, no, no, no. We, we started measuring it. And now we actually can manage it. And, and it's all coming from citizen science, which is really an amazing concept and really cool to have people who are going, yeah, you know, I, I, I fished this river. I, you know, or or to your point earlier of, you know, I grew up, playing in this river and I want to make sure it's there for my kids and my grandkids. And, and, um, these are the types of, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, these are the types of things that when once they're measured and you can analyze it and manage it, that you can affect positive change.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. One kind of thing I didn't anticipate, but maybe I should have is that, you know, we've got people that, you know, have been living beside the, river that they're sampling their whole lives, you know, or been fishing it for decades or something like that. And and you know, just are absolutely in love with their river. And and what several of them are are telling us that's just super uh, motivating to me is that they have a new appreciation for their river after they've started to look at it through this different lens and you know collect these samples and look at the chemistry. And it just it makes them all the more in love with their rivers and all the more motivated to do whatever they can to to protect those. We've also had several people that have taken their kids out or grandkids out to um, participate in the sampling, and 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 just told us, you know, really exciting stories about that and how meaningful it was, both for the kids to be involved in the scientific process, or grandkids to be involved in the scientific process, but also how much satisfaction that gave them as, you know, as the stewards, let's say, of the rivers, and how it reflected on them. That's through the eyes of their,
0: you know, their kids or grandkids. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, well, what, what do you are, so we kind of talked about science on the fly and I'm, I, I also do want to cover this because again, I can, I talk about this stuff a lot and, and i work with businesses. Um, you know, my focus is on, is, is on business and, and, and mitigation. Um, but I want to take this opportunity to also ask a scientist, yeah, how, how is climate change affecting fish? Right, I mean, whether it's marine or cold water species, what are what are some of the things that the science is telling us that is that is happening to to fish as a result of of climate change? Well,
1: yeah, let me start with cold water species because maybe that's the easiest one to understand in a lot of ways. It's the most direct. You know, it's if you're a trout, you like cold water, and if your your streams. Warming up as it is in lots of different places, including in a lot of the, let's say, the iconic trout streams in the U.S. That's that's not a good thing for a trout, you know. And it's, um, I, I haven't had the opportunity to fish in the rivers in Montana for a long time, but I understand that, you know, a lot of those get shut down for parts of the year, times of the day, because they're getting too warm and the fish are getting stressed out, you know. And it, if you want to, so so that's really striking, you know. These amazing iconic rivers in the west are getting too warm for trout to do so well in so 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 that's that's a clear one you know and their projections out you know over the coming decades that the you know the trout are going to be wiped out of a lot of places they already that that they currently exist if we don't kind of turn things around and, and limit warming so so that's one um uh in the ocean um not only is ocean warming, but its its um, acidity is changing. So as you put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's absorbed into the ocean, that changes the pH of the ocean. And it does some bad things for some ocean organisms that make shells and that form the base of the food web in a lot of different ways. So uh, you, you start to wipe out the base of the food web that trickles up and impacts you know, the salmon and everything, uh, the fish and uh, other things that we care about. So that that's starting to happen um you get uh back to arctic examples if you get permafrost thaw, you get increased erosion that can cause issues mm-hmm. in streams and covering up spawning beds and everything else so yeah there's lots of there's lots of negatives you know there, i mean there, there's all different ways. climate change is a really broad thing and it's you know it's not just that the air is warming, but this changes in precipitation, which changes the hydrology and the discharge of rivers, which can uh, have all different kinds of implications and bigger floods. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And it's not to say that it's all a bad news story and that everything's a negative, uh, but, uh, you know, in balance, it certainly is shaping up to be that way. And so, yeah, for all of those, all of us that care about rivers and oceans and fish, fly fishing and getting out there and, and care about, you know, our kids and grandkids and so on having similar opportunities, it's time to get to work because, um, you know, it's, we're really kind of at the, I'd say that, well, I don't know where it's all going to end up because I don't know how quickly we're going to slam on the brakes, but I'll say, you know, potentially we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg here and, and we're already seeing some pretty dramatic changes. I think most people are, even in the last year, I think a lot more people are actually recognizing that and feeling it than they ever have before. I mean, I've talked about friends and family in the West that, you know, they want to get out of there at times because of the fires and you can't get out of the smoke. And that's, I mean, that's climate change. That's, that is climate change that's impacting people. And it's not to say that there aren't other elements, but uh, that are, that are, you know, influencing it, but essentially, you know, if you start to heat things up and dry things out, you know, you're more likely to get a fire and that's, that's happening in lots of different places. So I don't even remember what the question was, but, um, you know, the acid- <laughs> I, <laughs>
0: that, 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 that was perfect. I, I I just wanted to hear some examples from, from your perspective and, 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 and that's a, that's an excellent summary. And I'll just, uh, to, to add to that, just as a, a, a personal, um, I guess, testimonial of, of sort of what we're seeing. I'm in I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and we're we're seeing uh, sea level rise here, um, increasing numbers of, of days where um, we're flooding. And we're also seeing I mean, they don't call it the, the low country for for nothing. You know, that, that water, this is going to be an area that gets that gets hit first as as water uh there's more water in the ocean, right. Um, from, from melting glaciers and every precipitation and everything else. But, um, someone also recently caught a trophy snook in Charleston Harbor. So we're seeing changes in migratory patterns and there, I've always heard that there were, you know, you could occasionally find some like juvenile snook in the low country. Um, but they typically died off in the winter because they can't survive a freeze. But that tells you that the winter, are wild or mild enough that they're able to survive, so maybe they'll start thriving. So, I don't know that I'll, if I'm being honest, will be upset that there's snook in Charleston, but 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 it is uh an observation and and, and some of the things that that we're seeing. But um, but all of that is to say, and and you mentioned this, and you know, there are these changes that are, that are happening, and they you know, we, we tend to focus on, on the negative. What are what are some things that give you hope and, and, and what are some things that are um, any success stories maybe from Science on the Fly or y'all's research that you're doing, any, anything like that? One thing that gives
1: me hope, and I, this is sort of a Science on the Fly example, I already sort of mentioned it, just but the number of people... That care and want to do something to help, and I think there's a lot of people out there that recognize that climate change is a problem, and they don't know what to do. And and in science on the, in, in science on the fly, there's all these anglers who sort of coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Okay, here's something where I can actually make a contribution in terms of helping to understand the science, and then hopefully use that science to affect change." So, um, so that makes me hopeful and. And it also just sort of motivates me that seeing all these people kind of rallying behind a cause. Um, It also makes me hopeful, again, and this is kind of paradoxical, but, you know, it's people are starting to see and feel climate change. And, yeah, I wish we had the foresight to listen to kind of what scientists have been saying for decades now and take some action (laughs) a while ago. But but we haven't done that so much. But. Now, when it's starting to hit us in the face a little bit, I, you know, it's sort of a wake up call and we can still we can still uh, change the direction of things at this point. And I think and I hope that enough people are recognizing that that we'll have the the motivation to do so. Uh, you know, one thing that's, in my view, a terrible shame is you don't have to go back too far. Uh, to when climate change and science in general wasn't a well, it was a polit. it's always a political issue but not a partisan issue you know and all all, all sides can get behind okay we got to protect this world we've climate change is a threat we've got to do something about it you know i don't know 10 12 years ago something like that there started to be this divide and that's i think terribly unfortunate and it didn't have to be that way and we gotta we gotta get past this because you know it's a it's um the science is the science. Yeah, we can argue about um, what the best way forward is and what the best policy solutions are for big challenges like climate change. But, you know, the, the facts are the facts. And um, I think that, the, I mean, the role for politics and for even for partisan politics is to, to, to debate the best ways to tackle this moving forward. And that's, you know, totally appropriate. And that's the way it should be. Um, we need to get away from You know, the idea that this is all some kind of a hoax or something like that, which I mean, I I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I hear that, because, you know, as as somebody who kind of works in this space, that either means I'm in on it or I'm being fooled. And I can tell you I'm not being I'm not in on it. Um, And uh, and I hope I'm not being fooled. (laughs) I mean, another way, you know, as somebody that has some responsibility in trying to manage scientists as, you know, as the deputy director at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, um, it's a little bit like herding cats. uh, And, and, you know, and they're independent thinkers. And there's no way to no quick way to get famous as a scientist or, or, you know, science kind of works by takes makes big advances by somebody kind of bucking what everybody else is saying. And, you know. Oh, my God, if I could somehow if I could demonstrate to you that this was all a bunch of junk and that the Earth's climate wasn't changing and we had nothing to worry about, not only would I be the most, you know, famous scientist on the face of the Earth, I'd be the most important and I'd be given a really positive message. And the fact is that there are fleetingly few scientists that are trying to say at this point that climate change isn't real, uh, that it's not a threat and that humans aren't uh, aren't driving. It. So, you know. It, it, if I could say that, I'd be at the head of the head of the class for sure, right, right? Right. screaming out as loud as I possibly could. <laughs>
0: um, well, what what is and and I get asked this, and sort of my my, I'll ask you first, and then I'll just sort of see wh- how your response is. But um, like I know. I keep going back to this, but I just, I know what I know. It's just what I do. You know, for me, it's like, if I talk to a business and they're going, Hey, I'm in the, the fishing industry or business, you know, what can I do? And, you know, answer is easy. Well, you can reduce your footprint, you know, and then maybe try and um, educate your, your customers on, on the climate science and hopefully they can then um, apply pressure on their elected officials to address this and, and affect change in that way um at at the policy level at a a scale that's uh necessary to 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 move on on something like this um but what are is there anything any tips or anything you could give to to the individual angler i can think of one but i'm I'm, I'm, i'll i'll be quiet that but that, that they can they can do to to take action
1: yeah well i mean first i'll i'll say that the answers you gave i think are great ones we can all look at our own, let's say, energy use uh, and think about how to, you know, re- use less and transition to renewable energy sources, uh, we can talk to people and encourage them to do the, educate, you know, encourage them to do the same. If people run a business, they have a fly shop or whatever, you can talk to your customers. You can sort of set the example. One thing I love about the fishing community and the fly fishing community is that it's diverse in terms of, um, well, it's, you know, views on science and climate change and everything else and what i often find is you know a scientists working in this area if i go give a talk about climate change the people that come and listen to that presentation uh, is sort of preaching to the choir and and i love it in the fly fishing community there are diversity of views and um, i'm also in that community you know I, I can i'm equally happy talking about my favorite five weight fly rod as i am talking about climate science you know so i could i like to uh, i like I like to be in that community. I like that um, you know there's a range of views on things, and we can talk about things. and My hope is that you know when when you share ideas and perspectives and backgrounds and stuff like that, you open some minds a little bit, and 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 it makes a difference. Um, and I and I think there's yeah, again, it's um, it's great to get out of the bubble of people that just think the same way as you do on yeah. on, on issues. So I, I welcome that.
0: All right, so um, now I've got to shift gears, and uh, you mentioned this and reminded me, we're on the Sustainable Angler. We've been talking about fish, and we've been talking about climate change, but we haven't really talked about fishing. Um, so you've traveled all over the world um, through, through, through your work. Any memorable species that come to mind, or have you had a chance to fish when you're working, or... Uh, yeah, I, 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 yes. Um, let yeah, boy, some stories.
1: Um, I'll tell a few, probably. But one that <laughs> I love, and this, I was on the Lena River in the Siberian Arctic. Uh, the is, you know, this massive river. We were on, we had chartered a boat for 130 foot boat on the River for two weeks, and we're up near the Lena Delta, um, near the Arctic Ocean, tundra, just incredibly remote. Wilderness area, and there was sort of a storm, and we had anchored up for a while and we took a little boat to shore. Um, You know, this is like a Mississippi riverside thing, Uh, no dams, unregulated, you know, and we're like 70 degrees north, and this beautiful stream coming out of the mountains, tundra, just wild. And, you know, I don't know if anyone had ever fished there before. They probably never, you know, I can't imagine anyone that ever fly fished. You know, we had a little time to kill. So, and I had no idea what, if anything, was there. And in like, in the course of an hour, we caught three different species. The only one I recognized were uh, grayling, arctic grayling, really beautiful fish. Yep. The other two were, I mean, they're you know, clearly in the trout salmon family, but they weren't any ones that I had seen before, you know, really? or knew what they were. Um, and we took some photos and so, you know, we could figure it out later. And one of them, it, I mean, it sort of looked like a rainbow trout, but with a different mouth and they're Lennox it's, I mean, they're, they're a trout Lennox that I didn't know anything about really beautiful. Yeah. Fish. I've never heard of that. And, and the other one, I don't, I didn't even know what and it was, you know, uh, probably two feet long, pretty skinny. Um, I found out it was a in. And at that point, I didn't know what a timing was. I don't know if you know a in, but they're, they're the largest Salmonid. They get up to hundred pounds. I mean, it's kind of this life fish that you try to catch. And, you know, we were catching several of them in an hour and had no idea what it was. So, so that was a neat experience. Um, That's amazing. Uh, another, I'm actually looking out my window right now. I see we have this, I have a raft sitting in my yard. It says science on the fly on its side. So we got five of these rafts and, uh, in this will be in Alaska pretty soon. And we do some work on some rivers in Alaska and we'll be floating down uh, one of them, if all goes as planned and or two of them actually in August, sort of 10 day floats. I'll be on the Kisaralik River. We'll have other people in our group on the um, Kweithluk River. There's a series of seven rivers in Alaska, right on the edge of permafrost. So they're um, so sort of the Southern extent of permafrost. Um, so that's going, we're interested in that. I think water samples, putting temperature sensors in the rivers, but they also have all five species of Pacific salmon and amazing rainbow trout and, and Dolly Varden tar. Uh, And so, and, you know, you're spending hours per day floating down a river for 10 or 12 days, and you can imagine this fair amount of fly fishing that goes on there. So that's just an amazing experience. I don't, you know, I've caught fish in the Congo in Africa that I didn't know what they were <laughs> and still don't. Um, you know, yeah, I get to some crazy places in the Amazon. And, uh, yeah, I was on a trip in the Amazon a couple of years ago, two years ago, I guess. And, um, you know, taking some casts and seeing what happens. <laughs> and I caught, uh, caught some peacock bass, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a nice perk of the job to work on rivers around the world and, uh, you know, get to throw a few flies.
0: Well, you seem to have uh, figured out certainly what 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 I'm trying to accomplish, which is you know trying to get paid to fish. So I, I uh, <laughs> we're we're going about it in different ways. Um, I think I, I think you've got it more dialed in than I do for sure. But um, I just I, I just want to know how, how how do I become a research assistant in Alaska? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we've got a pretty long list, but you know, uh, you're, uh, you're doing, I mean, you're doing one thing that we like, which is telling the story and, you know, a big a big part of the model of impact for science is, yeah, do the science to get the scientific understanding, but then tell the story. And there's all different kinds of way of doing that, but a podcast is certainly a great way. So, um, yeah, we've like we partnered with filmmakers, we've partnered with, you know, a bunch of people who are kind of storytellers and that's, uh, yeah, so... So you never know, right?
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, um, well, Doctor Holmes, I, I am uh, I I think that's a pretty good note to, to, to wrap on. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, it's a real treat for me. Um, I don't get to, to interview as, as as many scientists as I'd like, and so it's like I you know I read a lot, but it's you know hearing it from the, the, the scientist's mouth is, uh, far more, uh, powerful, I think than, than saying, "Oh, I read this and this is how I interpreted it. But, um, so anyway, so thank you very much for, for your time and for everything that you have done and continue to do, um, to, uh, protect the, the rivers that, that we all love. And, um, i do want to make one last mention um where can people find out more info on science on the fly again
1: yeah so um we have a website scienceonthefly.org an instagram account that's science on the fly you can also go to the woodwell climate research center's uh website and learn about both the you know overall what we do there as well as science on the fly and that's woodwellclimate.org and if you just sort of like google my name I don't know, Max Holmes, Arctic Earth Science, you'll find my contact information and you can tell me all the ridiculous things I've said in the last hour or or (laughs) ask some questions or or whatever, I'm happy to to take all comments.
0: Awesome. Well, well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Sustainable Angler. Uh, Special thanks to Dr. Max Holmes for his time and insight and everything he's doing to protect what he loves. Um, Also, thanks to the support from Rio's Gear. Um, If you like what you're hearing, do me a favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That helps us expand our audience and hopefully uh, educate and inspire more anglers to take action. Thanks and have a good one.